Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. We have put together a programme which celebrates women. We find women who are striking out on their own and achieving some extraordinary results. I'm Lyndon S. And I'm Susie Thorpe and we produce and present Women Making Waves. On today's programme, we meet Professor Tamsin Ford, CBE, who is an expert in child and adolescent psychiatry. Linda asks her about the impact of her work. And Jemima Wilcox, who runs her own successful photographic business, tells Susie and I about her ethos and how she gets the perfect photo. That's all coming up on this episode of Women Making Waves. How do you capture the perfect photo? And what is life like as a professional photographer? We spoke to pro photographer Jemima Wilcox. Jemima Wilcox is a photographer who specialises in taking portraits of business people, often while they're at work. She's also a public speaker and part of Elevate Her. In partnership with Cambridge Women in Tech, the network dedicated to furthering the roles of women in STEM. Thank you very much for joining us today on Women Making Waves, Jemima. Thank you, Linda. It's a pleasure and a delight to be here. When did you realise that you had a love of photography? I think it's probably in my teenage years. Um, I grew up in London. My parents were always people that encouraged me to go to art galleries. My father actually did a degree in fine art as a mature student so his influence was quite heavy on this so yeah it was it was something that I always found that creativity was there uh, and photography was a medium to channel that from. And how do you deal with people that don't like having the picture taken? I can imagine that must happen quite a lot actually. It does and I'd like to reassure everybody uh, it's very normal. I haven't yet found somebody who actually enjoys having the photo taken so it's something that people feel very commonly but I think it's down to the fact that they've not actually had a good experience. Yeah, I, I, just sort of interest though, the, the element, of our, which is a huge element and it's the main part, was this portraiture. Why mm. portraiture though? I'm fascinated with people. I, I, I find if I can understand an individual better uh, what makes them tick what makes them you know do what they do and be able to capture that in some way to be able to communicate it to everybody it's brilliant I mean the the projects I worked on during my uh, photography degree I studied Anglia Ruskin graduated in 2012 is that I've always focused uh, upon subjects that are a little bit niche a bit weird a bit strange and through this I photographed uh, cosplayers so people that dress up in different um kind of superhero costumes and things and I was like why do they do this let's let's see if I can get that out up until my uh, degree project was my alternative families where looking at people that live in a non kind of binary non uh, traditional family setups to be able to communicate there it's just I'm fascinated with personality and being able to capture that in a photograph putting yeah. people at ease it's not actually it's, it's a natural thing really did, did you did you learn that or is that just your personality um, that's a really good question. Nobody's ever <laughs> asked me that before. Um, 
I would say putting people at ease, um, something that's learnt, so I'm um, delighted to say what uh, time of recording, um, I'll be celebrating four years in business in October um, and through that it's uh, definitely learning how to make people at ease, there are certain little uh, things like if you come to uh, my studio, um, I'll make sure that you've got your favourite music playing and your you know, favourite tea or coffee, even a nice bit of cake there as well, which is all contributing factors of making somebody f- uh, feel at ease. But it's conversation. It's just making that connection. And that conversation is part of my personality that I'm, you know, very uh, bubbly and very friendly. I like to help people uh, feel at ease just getting to know them and making them feel special. And, you know, with that genuine interest I have in my clients, um, that puts people at ease straight away. And generally people do forget that I'm actually photographing them. That's that's the trick, isn't it? I think, actually, mm. that is the trick, because I think most of us are frightened that we could, I mean, I, I'm terrible with photographs. It's absolutely awful. I've got one eye shut, my mouth <laughs> hanging open. You know, everything goes wrong that can possibly go wrong. There are lots of photographers out there, I'm kind of imagining. How, how do you make sure that you stand out and, and that you're, you know, in front of the clients? For me personally, it's basically putting the customer first and making sure they have that experience that's completely like no other. The other side of it is, is understanding what they need. So if they need a headshot for, say, the LinkedIn profile, I'm going to recommend maybe them come to the studio and have that experience with me. Make it tailored, make it uh, something that's really different. If it's something a little bit more about their personality and getting that across a brand portrait session where we really delve into their values and understand collaboratively their values and how that can be translated into an image. So I feel that I really do listen to my customers, uh, being able to put them um, at ease. And I'm a little bit weird and a little bit quirky because I like to think about ways I can do differently. For example, we had a client who was a violinist, uh, also a woman in tech, who's a programmer. So we wanted to combine those two aspects. We made her brainwaves into visuals and then we overlaid those visuals onto her actual portraits. So it could be really, really distinctly uh, bespoke for her. Wow. Wow. And that was Paula Muldoon, wasn't it? That was Paula Muldoon. She's an amazing And I, I can woman. say that yeah. because she was a woman making waves as well. She has yeah. been on this programme. <laughs> the, the models are trained in front of the camera to to make themselves feel at ease because they have all the experience of, of doing that. And the, and the photographers don't really have to do a lot of work, maybe with the, the subjects. But with you... Um, your clients really don't have that experience. They don't have that experience of sitting in front of the camera mm. having these photos taken. It's almost almost contrite in many ways for them. So you have to give them, you have to make them feel as if they're, it's a natural process to be sitting in front of the camera. No, I completely agree because... It could be a case of if you are a model or somebody knows you think that person can sit down, that photographer knows what lighting they need and what brief they're going to be working at. But with an individual who might feel a little bit worried about this whole experience, it's all about preparing them. This is what's going to happen. This is what we're going to do. And the other thing that I just really want to stress is I never tell my clients to smile ever Mm. i will never tell my clients to smile Uh, and that's because i don't want something that's forced i don't want it to be unnatural and a technique i use with my clients is where i will have a conversation with them 
this will mean that I'll ask them questions and when you know I will just shoot and I'll just take photos whilst we have that conversation yes it means that there's going to be some really silly faces and some closed <laughs> eyes and one eye open and things like that but it means when those smiles do come and those laughter comes it's natural it's completely genuine and I think that's incredibly important to remember that those emotions need to come across as genuine as possible so they are received by the other people that looking at them are joining so I never tell my clients to smile ever because I'm looking for that genuine uh, smile or genuine uh, emotion so I think that really will does make me different from uh, our other uh, competitors out there. Mm. No, no use of the word cheese at all then. <laughs> I, I actually came up with a couple of alternatives. Uh-huh. So I came up with um, with the word yoga. Um, so to try to say yoga, and it's all about the 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 way that you form the word. So whilst you has it yoga, the G makes the uh, the smile wider, and it does make a. I've used it a couple of times, and people do titter uh, and find it kind of amusing. Jemima, when when you started this business four years ago, what, for anyone wanting to, well, I say anyone, any woman who wanted to start up any business, how how positive was it at the beginning when you started your business and how, how soon after did you realise that you were a professional photographer? I come from a background, I've been doing photography for over 10 years, I've been published nationally and internationally, I've been on TV and radio um, before I actually jumped into business and the funny thing was is that when I finished my degree in 2012, I moved to Manchester to be into a bigger city with bigger opportunities and was in a relationship with an individual who was a freelancer. Um, I didn't know that yet but that was the destination where I wanted to be Um, but I didn't at that stage have that confidence to do it. Um, fast forward a couple of years and four years ago, um, I have, uh, I've always had a background in marketing. I was doing various different marketing, uh, social media uh, roles and I took something that unfortunately turned out to be a complete disaster. I hated the job. I was coming home, you know, pretty much in tears. My husband um, was like, can't have this, can't do this now, you, you need to quit. And the agreement we came up with was that as long as I could find a part-time job, I could then use the rest of the time to to develop a business. And I was very, very um, grateful to the wonderful Ed Goodman, um, who at the time was running Cambridge Business Lounge and took me on as a part-time community manager. The trick was I surrounded myself with other business owners. I surrounded myself with other individuals on the same path, which really gave me the motivation to go for it. And I, I had that reassurance from these individuals that I was meeting I know that looking back at the content and the kind of imagery I was doing and I was I've I've you know as I mentioned I've done photography for a long time but I'd never really done you know the the corporate headshot or that kind of thing I never had any of it that this work I did at the beginning was was dire it was awful <laughs> but I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm I'm aware enough to know that it was it was pretty bad but I knew that I needed to start from somewhere I'm also very grateful to Cambridge Network for allowing me to come along to their recruitment events and do a pop-up booth there where I was offering you know uh, headshots at a, a very reasonable price to to get my portfolio together and I think it's the best thing I've ever done I, I don't think I ever considered myself to be a business owner but over the years I have developed 
my packages I've developed, um, the star that I go for. And um, this year we launched the Wilcox Collective, uh, which is a company myself and my husband uh, run where we are basically adventurers on a quest and we are going to deliver the best in visual content to tech companies. And we've identified that tech companies are, uh, you know, a very important uh, part of the Cambridge business ecosystem. And because we speak geek, it's easier for them to look at uh, considering working with us because we know how to put their individual people at ease because we do know that people that in the tech industry need to be able to communicate their personalities with individuals who also understand what they do and things like that. So we have grown from a person doing headshots and events um, to now running our own company uh, who are looking at bringing in lots of other individuals as a collaborative method to really working and championing uh, tech using Elevate Her, Cambridge female tech icons, as a project to make awareness of this and knowing that this is the time that women need to be championed. Women and people of colour in the tech industry need to have people like ourselves championing them, raising them up and basically uh, giving them more visibility in the area so we can uh, make sure other women and people of colour can uh, know that they can come into these industries. And I just don't think yet we're there to know, uh, make people aware that everybody can come into tech and everybody needs to there, but there needs to be more role models and more visibility of these industries that it is an open uh, opportunity for everybody. Mm. I think absolutely. I mean, that's exactly what we have been focusing on as well. I mean, mm. tech as well as everything else, of course, but but highlighting <laughs> what women are doing and, and mm. you know, Get, getting that uh, getting that recognised because I think women just tend to get on with things. They're not very good at shouting yep. about what they do. I think men are much oh, better, much, much, much it's, better it's, at that. It seems to be kind of, as a, a female, you're kind of slightly embarrassed to, you know, we seem to be a little bit timid. I've been um, kind of doing a bit more research into uh, looking at the idea of feminism and I'm proud to say I, I'm a feminist. And I think as, as women we are maybe producer of patriarchy, uh, tend to hide our light under a bushel and not like to shout about things because we feel a uncomfortable and don't understand how to take that praise or b we don't want to be seen like we're being uh, arrogant and forthright and but we should yeah. be we mm. should be happy we should be celebrating and I'm interested to hear about the technical side of what you do. I have visions of photographers in a dark room with loads of um, trays of dripping liquids and hanging things up on pegs. I'm kind of imagining that that day is over now. It's all digital, am I right? You would be correct in things like the 80s and the 90s where the predominant use of film was still there and people were using film, uh, you know, developing it in their own dark rooms and things like that. I personally know how to develop film and uh, from my university days. Anglia Ruskin still have a working black and white and colour dark rooms. Um, now these days, what you'll generally find me doing, it's funny, I, I like to, if people are out there considering about careers in photography, you'll actually spend 80% out there talking to people, marketing, selling. You'll only spend 20% of your time actually taking photos. Um, <laughs> it's a quite a small amount of time. So yeah. when you are doing that, generally you're in front of a laptop or you're in front of a, a computer and you're generally using technology such as, you know, your digital cameras. It's, it's 
it's the education there is where using the camera as a tool, using your lighting as a tool to, you know, for creativity. But no, unfortunately, no dark basements, although photographers seem to dwell in basements for some reason. <laughs> and Jamari, you use the words uh, very well in the sense that you say, you know, you talk about disaster, then about quitting and then part time jobs. So over and very normally you have had your low times, you've had your high times and it's been up and down as with most people. But what's been what's been a real low light for you that you've really had to pick yourself up when doing this business or as as you know through your career? This year, twenty twenty has been incredibly stressful because we intended to launch Elevate Her in March because we wanted to start a new business um, and then the pandemic hit and it has been uh, a huge uh, upheaval of understanding what to do um, with the business when your core demographic and your core audience are no longer available. That has been very stressful but I, I, I pride myself on being quite resilient so we had six weeks downtime um, and the rest of that afterwards, we've actually uh, been very fortunate to find clients who we've supported through our content, uh, visual content, to support their businesses through this. I think also one of the things that I am very, uh, one of the low times have, has generally been that feeling of imposter syndrome. I'm not good enough. I, why am I doing this? Why are people paying me this? Uh, alongside with also kind of just having to keep going learning that you know clients are not just going to come out the woodwork and flock to you as soon as you start your business you have to put the time and effort into and there are certain times where you have no more effort or nothing more to give and that that can get very low and very dark when you're looking at the fact that you need to pay your rent and pay your bills and I've been very fortunate in the situation where my husband has worked full time and has always worked full time he has been my major cheerleader and somebody that knows what I want to do and will carry on doing this but I've also you know had to learn how to lean on him and learn how to ask for help because I've always been very strongly independent and you know I can do this myself and things like that when he's like I'm here for you you know if you need this it'll be fine but there have been like periods of time when I've just found it so quite frustrating and, and hard when you get no's you get people coming to you uh and you don't get picked and it's your self-reflection of is that did I do something wrong or was why did they pick somebody else so it's building resilience over time understanding that you can't please everybody you know everybody's uh you need to know who your clients are and we know our clients are the tech companies and individuals in the tech spaces specifically women and people of color um and just kind of riding out the waves of it all so there have been genuine very very low times of going this is rubbish i, I can't stand to do this to very great amazing times um where we've you know we've been working for astrazeneca we've been doing a fantastic work with uh, paula muldoon and having those clients who turn around and say to you yeah go crazy be nuts <laughs> show, you know, show us what you can do that's completely different and yeah i want to have my brain waves converted into uh into visuals and then converted into actual music out of my brainwaves were like yes mm, and that's where I get now. that yeah, yeah, yeah that kick out of it that kick of knowing we're making something very very unique and very very different and how helping that individual to rise them up really make them aware you know people aware of who they are and 
being contributing to that factor is something that we're we're delighted to do so I think that's a really interesting thing that you, you've just said, actually, because you come across, I mean, we don't know you, but you come across <laughs> as being very confident and very good at what you do. And, you know, the research that, that we've carried out on you is, it, you know, you're really successful, really good. So saying, oh, sometimes I feel like I've got imposter syndrome sounds really startling. And I'm glad that you said <laughs> that because for other people... That's a comforting thing to hear yeah. that, you know, if yes. someone like you feels like that, then we're all allowed to feel like that, really. Yeah, that's, that's very true. The funny thing I've noticed recently with with the pandemic and with what's been happening this year is I strive on when there's urgency. I strive on when I need to get stuff done because there, when there's there's absolutely nothing there and I need to get things going. And I need to, I've noticed that when things are a bit comfortable and when I have bookings and I look at my calendar and go, oh, great, so I've got two here and next week got two there. And it's a, I become complacent and I don't like being complacent and I don't mm-hmm. like having that feeling of, yeah. So I, I've been reflecting a lot recently about when there's nothing there, I, I kick into action and I, I get motivated and it's a kind of a, an opposite of, of success and wealth where you've got everything, you want to get it more. For me, when I don't have anything, you know, I want it even more. If I could take everything away, I'm motivated to do it more. I find that, you know, quite fascinating. And, and thank you very much for um, saying I'm successful. That's, that's, that makes me feel very proud and, mm. uh, and acknowledged. Well, so you should be. Yeah. So you should be. Now, do you do some public speaking as well? What what kind of topics do you cover? I do. Yes. So uh, that's kind of, um, I am a bit of a, a strange one that comes. I love getting up on stage. I absolutely adore it. I love presenting to people. It's a bit of a kick about kind of, you know, sharing your knowledge and, and getting up there. And so a couple of things I do, uh, unfortunately, it's not going to uh, happen in person this year, but I run events for my business birthday to basically get people together to talk and, and make connections. So uh, one of the events I did, I think, for my second birthday was an event called It's Not Failing, It's Learning. And it was about <laughs> how businesses can overcome failure. And it was myself, Lenka Kopova and Ed Goodman as speakers. We held it at the Clip and Climb Climbing Wall in Cambridge. There was cake, there was bubbles, uh, cake made by my, my lovely husband. It was commented on that uh, if, uh, you know, he should go into a business making cakes because they were that good. Um, <laughs> but no, it was, it was about kind of bringing people together. So I like to discuss topics that people are a little bit scared. So to talk about, and I, I people in being a small business owner, you don't want to come across, yeah, I'm failing, this is awful, negative and things. You need to reach out and be honest and say, yeah, this is not going that well. And when you say that, you've got a network of people around you going, all right, if it's not going, how can I help you? What can we do to help? So that that was uh, in 2018, and that was uh, quite well uh, attended, and lots of people came away feeling uh, really motivated. And other topics I've, I've spoken on with more about photography is, you know, how can you what can you do to look great in your images? I focus a lot with my clients on their brand. So I discuss and has done, I've done talks about understanding your brand values, how to learn, you know, develop your brand values. And, and generally, I, I just get a kick out of being able to share that knowledge with, uh, with my community. And um, yeah, I just, 
it's a bit weird. I like going on stage and talking. <laughs> That's absolutely excellent. It's been really, really interesting talking to you today, Jemima. So I really, really enjoyed Linda talking to Jemima because I think she she's sort of created something that she's seen a space in the market when it comes to portraiture. I mean, yes, portraiture has been around for a long time, but it's the way she goes around it. She tells us how she tries to make her clients feel relaxed about it. She mm-hmm. in, sort of interjects lots of conversation and she's really, really thought about her business, hasn't she? She has. I've seen some of the results, you know, the photographs that she's taken, and they are absolutely fantastic and unexpected in some ways as well. It's quite nice to see people at work doing what they do rather than a posed photograph of standing in front of your work equipment. You know, I I really like the kind of action shots. Brilliant. Really, really interesting woman. Yeah. Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Coming up, we'll be joined by Professor Tamsin Ford, CBE, who is an expert in child and adolescent psychiatry. Cambridge 105 Radio. Cambridge Breakfast with Julian Clover and Lucy Malazzo. It's the breakfast show that's all about Cambridge. We've got the news. National and local. Travel updates. From the A14 to Milton Road and all stations to Cambridge. The people and the places. Plus guests in our Friday food club. Cambridge Juice. All the new things to do in the city. Our daily quiz. Oh yes, questions, questions with Lucian. And all request Jukebox Friday. And don't forget the coffee. Cambridge Breakfast with Julian Clover and Lucy Malazzo. Here with a fresh blend weekday mornings from 7. What's in your spare room? Christmas decorations? Maybe an old exercise bike? Could you give that room to a young person along with a fresh start? St Christopher's Fellowship is looking for people to become foster carers in Cambridgeshire to provide safe, caring homes for teenagers who need help. And because we've been working to improve young people's lives since 1870, you can trust that you're not on your own. You'll receive regular training, dedicated social worker support and space to share experiences with other carers. It's more than a spare room, it's a brighter future. Call 0800 234 6282 or visit stchris.org.uk slash fostering. St Christopher's, creating brighter futures. Hi, Pam here. Are you tired of the same old shops? Drop into Fantasia on Mill Road near Parker's Peace. Enter our treasure cave full of fine clothing and exotic homewares. Natural materials, uplifting ambiance, mood improvement guaranteed. Perk up your wardrobe, your home, your life. Dare to shop different. Fantasia, 64 Mill Road, Cambridge. Fantasia.uk.com For opening times, please see fantasia.uk.com. We enter the world of adolescent psychiatry now. Linda Ness speaks to Professor Tamsin Ford from Cambridge University. Professor Tamsin Ford, CBE, is an expert in child and adolescent psychiatry. She is a fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatrists and since 2019 has been based at the University of Cambridge, where she is Professor of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Amongst other work, Tamsin has set up initiatives aimed at highlighting mental health issues in young children 
and helped teachers to be more prepared when dealing with children who are experiencing problems. Welcome to Women Making Waves, Tamsin. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. It's, it's a fascinating topic, this, actually. And one thing, one thing that interests me is, is that career paths sometimes take twists from the original plan. When you started university, would you have been surprised to see where you are today? Oh, extremely. It's kind of been the story of, of my life, really. So even before I got to university, I loved reading and I loved writing and I always thought I was going to be a novelist in a garret um, really? <laughs> yes. And I um, grew up in a family of people who are talented thespians and photographers and painters. My mother um, was an art teacher, but also later in her life repaired ceramics for places like Christie's and Phillips, you know, incredibly wow. skilled. I can't underline a heading straight and I can't draw. <laughs> I guess I have been some kind of a writer. So if you had said to me when I was 11 or 12, you're going to be a doctor, I'd have fallen about laughing. And actually it was a chemistry teacher who taught me for the whole of secondary school from the age of 11, who when I was making A-level choices, heard that I was sort of dithering between two art subjects and a science or two science subjects and she really encouraged me to do chemistry saying you know you're you're better than average at this and the other option was English and she said you, you're a reader you'll always read books but if you stop doing chemistry now that'll be it and I, I'm quite an old bag so this was at the time when you needed three sciences or two sciences and maths to get to medical school and I think, actually, for what I do now, my history A-level was the sort of more important of the other stuff I could have picked up along the way. And in fact, at my interview at Bristol Medical School, I had a debate about this with the um, professor who seemingly was unimpressed with my argument that I could learn the bits of physics that I needed to <coughs> and didn't offer me a place. But, you know, I did in the end go off and do physics A-level after I left school. I don't think I'd have been able to do two science A-levels. So, you know, that conversation swung my entire career. And what was rather lovely is a few years ago, on the 30th anniversary of leaving school, I went back to a reunion hoping that this teacher would be there, and she was. So I got to have a conversation about, you know, your encouragement absolutely changed my life for the better. That's amazing. You know, you're the second woman that we've interviewed recently who has had that kind of mentor, that someone in the background who's pushed them in the right direction and changed their lives, really. It's fascinating. Yeah, it just shows the power of encouragement because I think, you know, I was surrounded by literature, art, the arts, um, and nobody in my family, you know, scientists were mad people who were going to blow up the world. <laughs> and... There was nobody feeding that side of me and the interest was there, but, you know, it was being given the confidence that actually you're good at this and it's important. So you trained as a doctor and you worked in several London hospitals, but then you specialised in psychiatry. What made you choose that particular path? Well, again, I think it's interesting. So whilst I was doing physics A-level, I couldn't find a job that would allow me the you know, the morning's off to go to my physics lessons. So I filled up my time because everybody else was either travelling the world or off at university. Um, I filled up my time by going to adult education courses. And, you know, a few of them were very practical. So I learnt to touch type properly without having to look down at your fingers, for which I'm immensely grateful. 
Um, it was very tedious, but a very good thing to have done. And I did history of art to please my mother and a writing course because that was just fun. But actually, one of the things that caught my eye was a um, psychology and sociology access to university course. And I just, you know, I had a spare afternoon and I just thought that looks interesting. I'll go. So actually, the interest in mental health was there, although not articulated before I even got to medical school. And we were very well taught. And actually, you know, there's a book which I think is God knows what edition it's in now. But um, it's a book called Learning Medicine, which sort of talks about the different career options. And it's aimed at people wanting to be medical students so that they have an idea of what they're letting themselves in for. And I remember very clearly reading it. And, and you know, one out of a year of 100 was likely to be a psychiatrist and thinking well that strikes me as not very many but you know not really thinking about it well in my year I think there are over 20 psychiatrists out of 109 of us and I think that was something about the very inspirational teaching but actually looking back at me and my attitudes I think it was going to be psychiatry or nothing or maybe public health but again you know it wasn't you know maybe if we'd had superb public health teaching I might have gone in for that at all but you know I've always wanted to do psychiatry when you qualify as a doctor they let you out with L plates essentially and in my day you had to do six months medicine and six months surgery it's now two years and interestingly I didn't feel ready to kind of abandon the doctoring bit of doctoring and and be a psychiatrist because at those times and I think sadly quite a lot today physical medicine and psychiatry is just too separate and when you're the psychiatrist on call you are the medical cover and I just didn't think that I had enough experience to do that well so I did what they now have to do which is an extra year where I went and worked in a casualty department at King's in Brixton which you know was a fabulous if exhausting experience and meant that you know by the end of that six months I'd basically seen pretty much every emergency I was likely to be faced with and have to handle on my own and then I did a job which was three months care of the elderly in the east end of London and three months care of the elderly mentally ill at a different allied hospital which is great because I got a little bit ahead of the game in psychiatry but I did a bit more medicine as well so that when I was the only person with any medical skills in a medical emergency in a psychiatric hospital I kind of felt equipped to deal with it and confident that I could. You were mentioning public health there and just as a bit of an aside I was interested to see that you have a master's in epidemiology which is of course very relevant in these Covid days. Have, have you been keeping a keen eye on the way that the virus is being handled? Yes, well, it's been a crash, crash um, revision course in infectious diseases epidemiology. So epidemiology really is the basic science that underpins public health in the same way that sort of physiology, anatomy, biochemistry, genetics are the basic sciences that underpin a lot of medicine. And the London School of Hygiene was such a privilege to go and do my master's there. So I'm very unusual as an academic in that I did all of my postgraduate clinical training in psychiatry before I really did any serious research, whereas most people get involved earlier on. And I think, you know, there are pluses and minuses. And I think it's another example of how my life has taken unexpected twists and turns. So if you had said to me 
even when I was most of the way through my um, psychiatry training, you're going to end up being a professor and an academic, I would have fallen around laughing at you. <laughs> really? As, as well as would have most of my friends and certainly most of the people who knew me at medical school. You know, I was not sitting in the front row and top of the class <laughs> by any means. In fact, I was usually in trouble for asking why. Um, <laughs> but that's and asking good, questions. <laughs> well, I thought so, but my um, tutors were less impressed at the time. <laughs> it's maybe just me, but... Is there more of an, an emphasis these days on mental health? Because I don't remember it being such an emphasis when I was when I was young and, and I went to the school in the 60s and 70s. Or do you think that instances of poor mental health has increased or is it just more transparent because we, we accept it and we talk about it far more now? That's an extremely good question. I think actually it's a bit of both. I was involved in a very interesting study led by colleagues at UCL, where they looked at panel surveys that had been completed in England, Wales and Scotland over a 20-year period. So these are big cross-sectional surveys about all kinds of things, but often containing a measure of mental health completed about children by parents or by young people themselves. And so these are different groups of young people, but you can look at age and gender of you know the same age and same gender over years and although we didn't detect a consistent signal that mental health was deteriorating year on year we did find that parents and young people were much more answer much more likely to answer positively to the question do you think you might have a mental health problem mm-hmm. now whether that reflects a change in awareness or a change in willingness to speak out I don't know and I I agree I think certainly there's been some very hard work via the Royal College of Psychiatrists and other mental health organisations to tackle stigma head-on and to encourage people to to seek help which I think is a good thing we have effective interventions and we just need to be able to plug more people into them Mm -hmm. and you know the burden of mental health conditions is as high as that for cancer or cardiovascular disease the funding is is much much lower both in terms of research and service provision and i think this reflects the the stigma that's attached to mental health still although i think it is lifting Mm-hmm. At the same time, some very careful studies have demonstrated that I think we are seeing an increase in mental health conditions among young people in the UK. So a colleague from Cardiff, Stephen Collishaw, has studied trends in poor mental health in young people across the world and he's sort of detected clear increases and decreases in different countries at different times as far as you can, adjusting for sort of methodological problems. And I think it is really difficult because the way people answer questionnaires changes over time. Mm -hmm. The questionnaires used or the way you measure and define mental health. So autism is a, a very good example. When I was training as a psychiatrist in the 1990s, we still thought that autism was a very rare, severe a condition affecting one in 10,000 children that was mostly associated with a degree of learning disability when in fact as 
people have studied it in more depth and in populations that weren't collected via clinics, we realise now that it's a spectrum. Uh-huh. And probably it's more like one in a hundred young people are affected to the point that it interferes with their functioning. You know, so I think with autism spectrum in particular, you have to be a bit careful. I think there has been a whole redefinition of the condition and also much greater awareness of the condition and how it can impact on people. Mm -hmm. That said, I've been part of big national surveys, um, which again was a huge amount of luck and a real privilege to be involved in the first one as a clinical rater. And then in the last one, I trained most of the clinical raters and ended up leading the scientific advice to to the report in three separate surveys which were big the first one was ten and a half thousand the second one was nearly eight thousand and the last one was over nine thousand children and young people and that does show a statistically significant increase in the age group that we had data on at all three time points so it's gone up from basically one in one in ten to one in eight. For the first time, we had data in older teenagers, so 17 to 19-year-olds in the last survey, and they seem to be really struggling, and that is now a consistent signal that is coming out of lots of different data sources. So the Millennium cohort, who are now um, 19, the last data was collected when they were 17, huge rates of psychological distress, and likewise, There has been a parallel survey of adult mental health that has happened every seven years. And in the last one, which was 2014, there's a sudden spike of anxiety and depression and self-harm amongst the 16 to 24-year-olds, particularly young women. So I think when you're getting the same signal from different teams of researchers in different ways, I think we have to conclude that there is something that is badly affecting the mental health of our older teenagers and particularly young girls. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that something might be the internet and social media? I think it is something that lots of people are worried about. I don't think it's going to be any one thing and I think there is a correlation between social media use and poor mental health. So in our national survey in 2017, for example, youngsters that um, had a mental health condition were more likely to feel out of control on their internet use. They were more likely to feel that they couldn't be themselves. They were more likely to have both perpetrated and been the victim of cyberbullying. But we really lack longitudinal data and it could work both ways. People withdraw when their mental health is poor. So maybe you're spending more time on the internet because you're not doing other things. Yeah, I know. It it has been a worry, I think, for for a lot of people. And there does seem to have been quite a radical change over the past few years. And that's what made me wonder if that was maybe a factor. Now, last year, in, in 2019, you were awarded a CBE for your work in transforming mental health services in schools in the United Kingdom. How did that feel? Well, if I'm honest, I was completely gobsmacked. Um, it came out of the blue. I thought the letter was a tax return, you know. This, <laughs> <laughs> this official letter arrives. And, and then I thought it was someone having a joke. I actually showed it to my husband and said, which one of your friends are that good at um, Photoshop? Um, it It was really lovely 
you know, the, the day of actually going and picking up the award was was a really lovely day. My children and my husband and I went to the palace. And yes, you know, it's the fact that a whole group of peers would have had to have written recommendations. And, you know, I've been involved in writing them for other people. Yeah, I was amazed. I felt very humbled. I felt, why me and not many of the other people I know who I work with or those I know of and haven't met. But yes, very grateful, delighted, but hugely surprised. <laughs> you, you have children of your own, as, as you've mentioned. Something I'm a little bit curious about, do you think that your involvement in the research that you do has made you more aware of their growth and experiences and that of their friends as well? Are you kind of watching them with a professional eye, you know, in, in a kind of unconscious way, I mean? <laughs> you know, we try not to. I mean, obviously, you know, all the work I was involved with around managing behaviour, I think was hugely helpful, you know, Babies don't come along with a manual. No. Um, and you have no control over who comes to live with you. Some of us score an angel and get some, you know, <laughs> a baby with a really lovely, warm, easygoing temperament who's just easy to be with. And some of us get children who are irritable, anxious, you know, just much trickier to... Um, scaffold their behavior in a way that they can develop to their potential i think they have been hugely helpful so you know i think they were they were three when they first helped a psychology assistant get to grips with tests they were doing in a in a study <laughs> um and you know they've done it all the way since they've tested out way the way things are uh, put together and how long it takes to do questionnaires yeah I think it you know I'm sure it has influenced their experience as children I hope not in in a bad way and I you know I, I would, haven't allowed them to be in any of my studies but um, I think they've quite enjoyed you know having their opinions taken seriously mm. um, yeah I can imagine and what work are you involved with at the moment Tamsin? Um, well, at the moment, as with probably a lot of people, we're very preoccupied by getting data on mental health amongst children and young people in relation to COVID because we have a huge data gap in the under-16s, which there are a couple of good internet-linked convenience surveys that are telling us about what's happening during COVID, but we have almost no data that allows us to link from how children were doing before COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so we've managed to get funding to go back to the national survey sample that were last seen in 2017. And there is the first wave of three waves of questionnaires that will be reported on later this month. Yes, it's, it's been a, a busy but interesting time. Professor Tamsin Ford, CBE, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed speaking to Professor Tamsin Ford because very, very interesting. I'm quite interested in psychiatry, psychology, that kind of thing. And I found it very interesting, you know, her talking about 
the, the children and people that are suffering from stress and anxiety. And the fact that, you know, it does seem to be a growing thing. And, and we did have that topic. Is it a growing or is it just more recognised these mm. days? I would say it's the latter part, actually. If I yeah, have my definitely. humble opinion, Linda, I would probably say <laughs> that we are recognising it more than we've ever done, which is a good thing, isn't it? Yes, I think it is. It is. But I did find it amusing when, 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 when I asked her if she thought she'd be surprised about what she was doing at the moment. And she said, yes, I wasn't the best student. Um, and I think that's very interesting. You know, she's now a professor and very renowned at what she's doing. So any, you know, students that are listening, you know, it just shows you for the bit of, bit of application where you can get to. That's all we have time for in this edition of Women Making Waves. We'd very much like to thank our guests, Professor Tamsin Ford and Jemima Wilcox. If you know of a woman who is making waves, we'd like to speak to her. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at Women Making Waves Radio. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website womenmakingwaves.co.uk where you can hear all of our interviews. Women Making Waves is a jibber-jabber production 